You just heard Struck Nerves, Common Ground. It's off a record called Rattle the Cage, which will be out on Youngblood Records December 4th on vinyl and on digital. Sean Youngblood has been a supporter of this hardcore since our very first year and a supporter of true hardcore for as long as he's had the label out. It's actually awesome to see him. On, this will be his 49th record. In 2021, we will definitely have him as a guest. Struck Nerve features members of Agitator, Payback, Jesus Peace, ex-members of Time Bomb, Pavwicko is in every fucking band ever, and I really like that we have guys who have been in bands for quite a amount of times keep popping up new bands out here. It's a thing that really keeps pushing Philly hardcore these days, and I'm very excited to see a band bringing out that early 2000s hard mosh but fast-paced style that you had heard in a lot of bands from the Posse Numbers ever. I noticed once I actually listened to the episode in full on the Spotify last week that I didn't say, this is Hardcore Podcast. I think because I don't have a opening theme or anything like that, sometimes I may forget about it. This is our 13th episode, and it's coming out the night before Thanksgiving. So, happy Thanksgiving for those who celebrate it here in America. And for everybody else, I hope that you do still find in your own way something to be thankful for. COVID has made 2020 a year that will always be marked with a very dark cloud. But it is important that we do our best to find things to be thankful for in our own ways. And... I have not always been this way, but really to power through some of these very dark times, I've tried to find even the smallest bits of sun that are going through the clouds over us, because without those little bits of hope, we're really doomed. And I don't want to believe that we're doomed. I think that if anything, through projects like for me with this podcast and seeing some of my friends be so resilient and just all the activity that people have been engaging with to keep their minds occupied, I believe that together we can overcome everything, and I hope that maybe today you could take a little bit of time and understand that despite the things that we have lost, and despite the people that we have lost, we still have so much more than other people to be thankful for, and we have so much in front of us to be hopeful for. So one of the reasons why this episode is a little bit shorter is because of the fact that I had some technical difficulties and it was hard to get the Zoom thing up and running. And the two-hour window that I had was shortened even more. And it's not the best scenario, but what took place is a conversation that is completely unique 
in the way that the conversation took place, there is still some linear progression in our guest and what got him to where he's at now. But because of the time that he and I have spent being friends and the stuff that we've been through, the shared losses, you know, that uh, thrill of victory, the agony of defeat kind of thing that we were able to go back and forth. And he engaged me quite a bit and asked quite a few questions of me, which was interesting because that hadn't really happened in the previous dozen podcasts. From writing graffiti, going to hardcore shows, from being a kid in Delaware who didn't really see a direct path to eventually bringing Champion to be a streetwear brand again and to return to uh, high recognition. He would go on to work for Under Armour before going on to other business adventures, including some entrepreneurial stuff with an old friend who played in both Victory Strike and Horror Show briefly. It's really awesome to see that despite the fact that he has so much going on in the actual business professional world that he looks so fondly back on his times in hardcore. And I just love this conversation. It felt really comfortable. And actually, it was interesting just because we didn't go through and then what and then what. But we went back and forth that this has a very unique feel and... I'm very happy that he took the time to speak with us. I don't want to ruin too much of what he did because he speaks on it. For those of you who were at the benefit show we put on at the First Unitarian Church in January of 2012, you would have seen him perform with his hip-hop act, Bunk, which also featured Tyler Mullen from Year of the Knife featuring on drums, and a quick guest spot from Money Grip, Mike Brown, who was a bass player at Punishment, and my friend Dwight from Frankfurt, so, guys, we grew up with it. Was actually, I just rewatched the show and posted on Twitter. I was very excited about this episode and kind of wanted to get that feeling of that show because it was just great to see Ernie up there at the First Unitarian Church. So, I hope you enjoy this one. I know I'm it's talking be a to a very one, good friend of mine, Ernie Talbert, someone who grew up in Delaware hardcore, coming up through a lot of different uh, channels to be someone who. I think has exceeded any expectation that any of our friends would have ever put on any of us. And he is a global brand marketer. He is a mentor of up and coming entrepreneurs. And he's still the same kid. I grew up going to shows with only now a grown man and a father and a husband and a, uh, a leader in industry. Thank you. Was that scripted? No, nah, that's just off the top, man. Oh. <laughs> so what's up, man? How are you? Man, I'm doing well. I uh in this in this podcast thing that I do, a lot of what I like to touch on is just how people who came into hardcore find a passion, whether it's within the scene or outside the scene, and they use whether it's just the drive or the DIY or just the ambition that comes from taking something from nothing. And in my head, thinking about people that would be great to bring on the show, you were at the top of the list, obviously, because of just who you became and then what you were, you know, like, and when I say what you were, like you, you were in, you were in the scraps like us. You were, I mean, you went through all the same stuff we went through and yet you managed to have some kind of like, not transformation, but you had a vision that went beyond the simple. And, and I watched this video on the news where you're walking this young entrepreneur through 
uh, an entire uh, process. And I was just proud for my friend that came up and shows to be able to impart all this wisdom on this next generation. And I just thought you'd be a great guy to speak to. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you saw that video. That was Trey, and Trey is uh, from Philadelphia, and he's a he's a hustler in his own right, and he's like drives his own business. He's people that don't know he's a 13 year old kid now. Four, he's 14 now. Started his own business at 12 years old, selling T-shirts in uh, barber shops around Philadelphia. Took his first 16 T-shirts, I think it was 16 T-shirts he sold. Took the money, reinvested it, went and bought more stuff. Took that money, reinvested it, went and bought more stuff. And he's just like, he's on it. You know, I think a, a lot of, a lot of like, uh, paths for people sometimes is, is mentorship, but I think it is actually comes more through exposure. And when people get exposure and they get access and they get opportunity, then they can take advantage of it. And, um, a, a big part of like what you watched with me and Trey was just giving him more exposure things like uh, college and some factories here that he may or may not work with and just making sure he knew what the different routes were. Speaking on exposure, what is it that exposed you at that age or in the time frame where you were, you know, going to hardcore shows, living in Delaware, writing graffiti, what exposed you to push you to go to Howard university and then one day end up being this person's mentor? Yeah, I think, one for me is I was starting to say before is like I was privileged in the sense that, you know, I people before me went to college. So I had a blueprint laid out for me. So I think that exposure led me to know that that was a that was a path and a possibility. And sometimes all it takes is exposure. Right. And then the second thing uh, for me is, you know, feeling like I was running in place at the time, you know, before going back to school, just feeling like I was you know, treading water, doing the same thing. And I think that was one of the mental things that I wanted to hurdle over. And look, man, like a lot of people, a lot of people probably feel that way and they feel stuck and they don't know, like go left, right, up or down. And it bogs them down. And I, I was in a bogged down position, I think, for a little bit as well. Um, kind of knowing I wanted to do something else, do something better. I wanted to move on. And I don't know that, that you know, it was a personal feeling. So. I guess that's, that's probably where I would leave it. Is like I just didn't want to be running in place anymore. I feel like people within the hardcore punk scene sometimes don't have that kind of self awareness, and so they get lost into trivialities, and it takes them a while. I always say hardcore punk's more like a Peter Pan world where people don't grow; they just kind of stay in an echo chamber. And um, I know quite a few people who have always felt scared to go beyond the limitations of that scene. But I, I always remember you being able to have your foot in a new world and still be attached to everything that we were doing, you know? Um, and I think, yeah. I think hardcore people are afraid to do that. Well, I'll say, I, I mean, my view was kind of singular at some point. It wasn't, it wasn't always so broad, but like, like you were saying, I mean, even in hardcore, how many men older than the two of us, you know, call themselves hardcore kids? And they're like 50, pushing 50. And like, yeah, there's that term because there is that Peter Panism of uh, being a hardcore kid. And it's not necessarily like a negative. I think 
I think to me, it's like to each his own, to every individual. And for me, like I was, you know, like you said, I was writing graffiti. I was going to shows. Those were things I really cared about at the time. Like I grew up skateboarding. I stopped caring about skateboarding after a while. And I just started going to shows and getting in trouble. And like, those are the things that I was, it's bad to say that's the thing that I was focused on, but that's the truth. And um, I think at some point, like there are things around you in your world that motivate you to do things different or do things differently. And, you know, I look at somebody like you who grew up in hardcore too, just right up the highway. And like, you're doing things differently. Like you love what you love, but like, instead of, you might still be pushing bands, but now you're also creating shows, you're creating podcasts. And if for me, it was like, all right, so what do I do? Like, what am I creating? What am I doing? What am I contributing? And that, I think that's, those are the thoughts that start to creep into your mind. And you're like, when you're sitting, sitting in place that you're like, I want to figure something else out. So it doesn't mean you don't have love for, for who you are, or what you do. It means you just evolve your identity. And the other thing, um, one of the co-founders of Under Armour, like I learned from him, like Kip folks kind of just watching his transformation and journey is it's okay to be somebody different. It's okay to like look at yourself and evolve yourself over the years. Our lives are short. And within this time, this time that we have here on this planet, like there is no way to judge another person because your time is so short and it's your personal journey through this space and time that like you constantly have to evolve. You constantly have to be your best self. And like sometimes you anchor yourself down to things that are just not beneficial to like your personal evolution. And you got to shed that weight and drop those anchors as well. So I think that's, I mean, I'm getting all like metaphoric and shit, but those are the things I was kind of feeling, you know, at the time. You know, after having done the same thing every single every single day, every single night, you know. No, I think it's actually uh, if you look at if I looked at your timeline and having looked in your incredible LinkedIn profile, the time when you were jumping into Howard University, some of us were facing felony charges on top of felony charges. And we were stuck in a muck of not wanting to see beyond the next day. And so I have to ask you when you said you were going to go back and you were going to break the cycle of the day in day out, did you have the path carved out and you said, all I need to do is to go to college and the rest will take me or was it going to college and the path was shown to you through Howard university? Let me, so I want to break that down too, just to be, just to be hundred percent clear. So I first went to college at university of Delaware. It was Looking back in hindsight, for me personally, it was a bad decision. Uh, I went went to school in in 2000. I was kicked out of school at the end of 2000, so I was kicked out of University of Delaware because I was in the same area doing the same stuff. And like, yeah, I, I was around my friends and I had easy access up and down the highway to more of my friends in Philadelphia and, and so forth. But like at that time, I don't know. At that time, I think being so close and around the things that I knew and loved, and I won't say I was afraid to to branch out and go do something different or like leave my space, which was like northern Delaware, Philadelphia to an extent. And um, you know, I found myself found myself getting in trouble that like I just didn't think it was a big deal. 
So I got kicked out of college in two, like I said, in 2000, was it was 2001. And I think that was eye opening for me because around that same time I got, got in a lot of trouble. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep on that, but I got in a lot of trouble from multiple agencies. I couldn't escape. Uh, my grandfather passed away and then my nephew was born, you know, and around that time I told myself that like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to start to do, do things differently. You know what I mean? But you know, at the end of the year, the following year, that probably lasted what, like three months. And I didn't really do things differently. Um, so I would say like my learning in terms of like going on and being somebody else was an evolution versus just like a, a wake up. Um, and the people that can wake up and move on and do stuff differently, those are brilliant people. I just wasn't one of them. I had to, I had to learn through multiple lessons and iterations of like, of, of things and situations and trials and people and then put it all together at the end and be like, it ain't about, it ain't about him. It ain't about her. It ain't about them. It's about me. And how am I going to do better? So, and that took a few years. I don't think I'm, cause I'm not sure that many people know, like, you know, I got booted out of college. So I had to work my way back. I worked in a warehouse at the time. I worked in an Amazon warehouse. Uh, I worked as like a doing tele, what is customer service? I did customer Telemarketing. service. Yeah, telemarketing, like all this stuff, because I was trying to fill my day up, figure out like where I can make a little bit of money. So yeah, I did. Um, that's that's what happened after I got booted out of college. I would I would I would say that at that same time frame, a lot of us were going through that shuffle. And I remember the thing that drove me was touring, and the job I was doing was only to make the money to get to the next tour, and I would come home with this dream. And it was like me, Mike Brown, Damien, constantly in these six-month jobs, these eight-month jobs between these tours. And it was breaking down the our ability to actually be a functional human because you weren't thinking past that tour. And uh, I've, never, I've never been someone who thought college was always a way for us because we always had the access to physical trades to make money. But yeah. at a certain point, when uh, the chance to go union, a lot of our friends now who we all came up with are basically union dudes that have jobs, have kids. They talk about the Eagles game and, and they're, and they, they're not, they're not, they're not relegated to some normal life. Cause they're still them same maniacs. They just have kids and a mortgage over them. So they keep within, Hey, I can't just go out and wild out and go to jail. And what I, what I found interesting about you, especially when you start talking about, and now that we're talking about that specifically in early two thousands, like, you know, I could think of 2002, uh, us up in Northeast PA, and we got in that scrap with the skinheads. And that was like, all right, this is a threshold moment for us where a lot of our friends kind of try to turn it up a notch after that moment. And uh, I just think about what you said earlier in the the iterations and the mistakes. And, and I that's exactly how I feel like my 20s and my early 30s was. You know, I think this is what the path I'm on. I'm going to fail. I, I fall on my face. I feel stupid. I got to get bug up, dust off and try it again. And uh, seeing now that you said that you got kicked out of university of Delaware and uh, the Amazon job and the telemarketing, there definitely was drive within you. Did you, did you through hip hop? And I, cause at one point you had a hip hop project and you were doing graffiti. Yeah. Was that stuff that would eventually influence you to, to go the route of brand marketing or you jumped into the Howard thing later on just to get back into the college mode. You know what? Like, you know how you said, um, 
we were just talking about exposure and you were like most of my friends knew about like union trades and labor trades and that's kind of what we went into yeah so it, i mean for me it was a little bit of the same so like i mean not the same thing like i didn't know about union and labor trades that's not like what was laid out i grew up in a, a military family and i remember being being always into kind of art and wanting to draw and my dad always being like that shit don't make money you can't do that and now all the people I know that are artists are like the most well-off people in the world. But like, <laughs> he used to tell yeah, me like, seriously. you can't do that. <laughs> and um, so I actually thought my path was going to be in the military. That's what everyone in my family was. And I thought I was going to be in the military actually going up through Howard. And I never had exposure to, to like uh, people working in business. Cause I didn't know anybody in business. My mom worked in a school, my dad's in the military. So, you know, I, I didn't really know. I didn't really know. Like I went to university of Delaware and my, my undergrad was in political science. Cause I thought it would give me some time to figure it out. And then, I don't know, join the military afterwards. And, you know, plan was always to just try and get a college degree and then, I don't know, go to the military. Yeah. Become an officer. <laughs> yeah. Become like an officer. Cause that's what I saw. And that's, that's who all my dad's friends were. And my grandfather was in the military and my other grandfather was in the military. It's just, it was around me. Um, but I got, you know, exposure comes in like unexpected ways. And I think like my, my involvement in like growing up in different music and like hip hop, like I was in a hip hop long before I listened, discovered like punk rock and like skateboarding led me hip hop led me to develop a, a set of friends, like when I was a young kid, like in the neighborhood. And those, those set of friends were into all types of stuff, like graffiti and, and uh, skateboarding. And then I started skateboarding and then that led me to discover like punk rock and like oi and led me to discover like hardcore along the way before I got into high school. And like, that just opened me up to different worlds of people. And I think all of that stuff, when I take that all in, like, that pointed me into like marketing and understanding of like how different groups of people affect and shape culture. And that's, what's probably kept me driven is like my experience in hardcore, my experiences like skateboarding, my experiences writing graffiti uh, kept me driven specifically in like brand marketing. Cause not too many people you could talk to, not too many people you could talk to in like marketing and you'll find them here and there. will will and can talk to you about like hardcore music. And, um, Another thing that's funny is in business, you know how you said like uh, you, if you're going to be a boss, you got to know sports and like labor. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, when I got into business, like I, I was, I followed the Eagles and I was into the Sixers for a long time, but I'll tell you, like, to be honest, when you get into like, I don't know, there's a period of time when people were in the like hardcore. Yeah. They followed sports, but they weren't as into it as like, like hardcore sports fans, like guy, regular guys, you know what I mean? And I remember when I got into business, it was the same way. Like if you didn't know about sport, you couldn't have a conversation with people. So I would say probably like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I had to force myself back into like that part of my life and learn about that shit again and again so I could have conversations with people. So there's things that like, there's things that like, there's things that you learn along the way that are unexpected or you weren't trying to learn. And there's things you have to unlearn. There's things you have to learn again. But what I've learned in this process is if you're not doing like one of those three, 
Like you just kind of take enough space. You know what I mean? Like you got to constantly challenging yourself in whichever way is right for you. No, I couldn't agree more. And the echo chamber that exists within like closed off cell friends versus what you said, you exposure to different friend groups. So you were, your, your, your just life experience is wider, you know, um, where I, you know, you, you know, from running the routes on the L I, I rolled my family from bridge and Pratt all the way down to Kensington, you know, there's a wider scope there, but then you start interacting with people, not from the neighborhood, but from music. And I'm going to have a whole podcast about like the neighborhood shows and back in the day stuff where the small shows that weren't downtown were because all that little interconnection exposure to whether it was like Nikki and Chris Palmer and the Northeast dudes. And then the, our old heads like Barletti and them skinhead dudes, but then all of us rolling downtown to a church show that was all like for a 17 year old, its own level of exposure. But then as you become an adult, I feel like sometimes you get into this bubble where you call the same couple of dudes. Oh, what are you doing this weekend? You're going out, you know, and then you're not trying to try yourself. You're not trying to do anything better. And like you said, of those three things. And, yeah, to, um, man, to each his own. Like if somebody wants to do that, like, I don't even, I don't have any judgment. Like that's cool. And I haven't, I haven't talked to people in years, man. I haven't seen people in years. I'm looking at you on zoom. I'm like, man, I ain't seen Joe in a while. Why is the, the microphone in front of his face came to see him, <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah, man, like it's, uh, I, I don't know. I think you just have to look at it through your own personal journey. No, I, and I, like, I, I agree to that. I feel yeah. people may not see what their journey is because the task of the day or the task of the week, the mundanity traps that ultimate vision. And like, I, I told you well, before we started the podcast, I got, I got heavy and I, you know, I was pouring concrete, but I was getting fat. I was going to shows, but I wasn't pushing myself. And then this jujitsu thing came that put you a different mindset just with COVID and not having the time to work on shows. And then the, the thought of, man, I really, I've done enough podcasts. Maybe we could try a podcast like this pushed in me. I, I think I don't explore enough. So I like what you said about learning, unlearning and pushing yourself. And yeah. uh, I definitely, that definitely resonated in me once you said that. Let me ask you this too, man. Like not even, probably not even today, less today, but like growing up, how many times did you find yourself in like a conflict or an argument or a fight, like a physical fight based on a friend of a friend's beef? Like so-and-so did this to so-and-so. He wrote over his graffiti. We're going to go fight this dude tonight. And like, okay, you going to come with us? And like, have you ever been like, not even some graffiti for you, but like, maybe what's well, graffiti for you? No, I'm telling you this right now. I, I when people like, oh, did you write? Yo, I was only in graffiti for the beef. You know what I mean? Like you guys wrote, I'm there to throw hands, smash somebody with a hammer. I'm not trying to be out there throwing up tall hands. I didn't have a good name. You know, <laughs> I literally, I try to write a couple of names back when I got older, it never worked out. And I had to be either the lookout guy or, oh, yo, we're going to go down to this graffiti meet, this dude, cross somebody out. We're going to smash them. I think that was probably the most exciting moments of graffiti besides the climbing on the L and here in the L rush was catching up with somebody who started shit with our boys. So, I mean, I, 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 I had that same fucking moment in, in looking at, so much of my time spent 
concerned with the troubles of others. And I, and I didn't see reciprocation and not only reciprocation, but I always saw my time being wasted and put into this entire negative frame of mind and scope. And it took me to close my circle to the smallest level to filter out where people weren't dragging me into things just as an extra hand to smash somebody. And That's when it. that, and when that happened, the, the side of me that looked for conflict and enjoyed, I really do, even as a fucking stupid adult, it's why I do jujitsu, why I love the chaos and that rush of an actual physical thing. And I found a more peaceful way to do it because other than that, I had no problem with the fight, even if I got my face smashed and I just liked it because that's yeah. how I came up. So yeah, I, that was my entire teens into my 20s and the, the very the very beginning of my 30s. I truly believe whether it's energy, God or fate, put me on house arrest and that put me in a calm where once I wasn't able to go out and get into the dumb shit, people found other people to do that for. And I was kind of able to find a little bit of peace. And, but that's, you said it exactly, man. And that's what I was getting on too. It's like you, you allow people to drag you into stuff and it may not even be like your friend's stuff. It may be even somebody else's stuff. And like, there's, there's two incidents like in my head right now that like, I can recall somebody going to fight because of something else that happened to somebody else getting in the fight and being mad that I wasn't like getting involved because I realized like I'm not even being dragged down by you you're letting somebody else drag you down and you're trying to pull me with you like how much care and concern do you have for me as a friend do you have the same care and concern for me as a friend and like what I'm trying to do is you do is for this person this idiot that you're fighting over and like you can call it like you can call it cowardice. You can call it uh, arrogance. You can call it like being smart, like whatever you want to call it doesn't really matter to me. But like those are the things that I look back on and I'm like, man, like you, you as a person only allow other people to pull you down to where they want to go. And they inadvertently don't know that they're doing it. Like you mentioned the skinhead fight up in Wilkesboro with those Nazis. Like I remember Nikki getting punched and getting punched in his chest or whatever. Uh, by that dude with the Hitler on his neck. And I remember the only reason, like, not the only reason, but, like, the reason I jumped in the fight is because it's something that happened directly to a friend at that point. And thinking, oh, I might get beat up by this dude. I remember his name, but I'm not shouting him out. But, like, I might get beat up by this dude, but I want to get some hits in. I remember, like, everybody, like, fighting for each other on the spot because it wasn't, like, Anybody was getting dragged down. It was almost like we were defending ourselves. I remember uh, the bottle, the tip jar. Did you smash the tip jar on someone's face, or did he? He smash tried it to he face? he tried to smash it on my face. He tried to smash it on your face. <laughs> <laughs> it was very close to taking my whole head off. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, he was rolling. He was rolling with like that. Uh, I think the dude's name was uh, Brian, the big guy. Because I had man. Hardcore world's messed up because I know people that are friends with those people. And it's yeah. the big the big dude's name was Brian. And he went to like boot me. And I remember as like I got knocked down, I think by like Tracy or no, that dude Brian pulled me on the ground. And I remember as he was going to like kick me, I already got kicked once in the face. I remember Mikey jumping up and popping this dude in the mouth and like giving me time to like escape from under his foot. But like, uh, yeah, when you're involved directly in like, what is the conflict? The conflict is something that happened to my friend right there. Like, 
those are things that I look back on. I'm like, okay, I could justify. But the things that are like, I'm getting dragged into conflict with somebody else for for something else. Like those are all times I look back and I'm like, I'm glad I didn't get involved. Like I've had friends have got shot and stabbed and like friends that have been killed and like, you know what I mean? Like that's it's not my it's not my beef. I'll tell you, for me personally, I could tell you like literally, at 18. I was down to swing on God himself if we thought we had beef with him. At 28, I was in what I found out later, only through hindsight and therapy, that I was in the beginning of PTSD from violence. And I started recognizing that decisions that I was making, the only outcome would either be jail, pain, or potential death from my own friends because of small, short-term solutions and it started really getting to me that I'm making these little decisions like, oh, yo, we got to, you know, this happened. We're all going to go here and this is how we're going to handle it. And it took a major consequential thing to happen in Tucson where somebody was shot and killed outside of a show we were playing for me to realize down the line in the chain of command and the decision making process that we have blood on our hands the minute we accept and say we're good to go with this. So at 28, I was in a conundrum because I love my friends. And I and I and I love being in the culture and I and I understood the aggression and all that, you know, male masculinity and all that crazy shit. But I under also understood that every decision made is a potential death, is a potential hospital visit. And, and I just got tired of it. And now at 30, you know, now I just turned 40 this summer, but at 38, I became the person who would try to speak to somebody and tell them, listen, down the road, this is the decision that you're going to make. And the outcome isn't worth the, 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 what you're trying to put out. Yeah. And it, it took me that long. It literally took me 20 years to, to go a 180 and say, hey, 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 I know that this is what you're upset about. But every time you decide to strike somebody or you have to inflict violence, you have to accept that you potentially could kill that person, whether purposefully or accidentally. I said to my daughter many years ago when she was, we're going to go down there. I said, listen, you get into a fight. You have to accept that any action you get could take someone's life. And I don't know if that's something that I want to see you go through saying, can you not do this? You know, I was like, I did it my whole life. We were raised that way. And uh, I find, I find the people that we grew up with all tell stories and all gave us a little something and the best, the best stories stay with you. And the, the mistakes made by the group are also should be learned and shared by the entire group. And I felt like at a certain time, the people that had moved on, moved on. And then the people that didn't see the mistakes, what they were, were always going to be stuck in a circle. And what I saw at the time, I'm actually in the midst of me getting my, like my brain and head together, I actually reached out to you because I knew you were involved with the champion brand. And funny enough, someone who was on the podcast in an earlier episode, you hooked them up with the champion printing thing where you got us champion hoodies to print for team America. And we actually had the guy who went to Europe as Team America on an earlier episode than what you were on. That's cool. So I like the connection that you had. Yeah. But, uh, to pull into some of the things, what made you? What was it? Was it Haynes Brands that got you into Champion, or was Champion a different thing before? Like, how did you get to the Champion thing? Yeah. So, man, that was that was part of I think waking up after I got in some more trouble around two thousand four. And I think that was part of like waking up, like 
after I was done with that trouble, yep, <laughs> I was uh, was uh, got into a relationship at that time with someone we both know, mm-hmm. and we moved down to D.C. and that's when I decided to go back to Howard. I went back. I went back to school. I took out a loan um, so I could fund fund my school. Washington D.C. You know, it's expensive to live in. And I started studying marketing because at that time I thought I wanted to, I knew I wanted to do something different. I wanted to, to get ahead. I think at that time I was making, right before that, I was making like $26,000 a year working at, uh, um, I was doing, uh, working for Discover Bank. So like Discover Card, doing like banking and deposit, deposit products and banking products and stuff. And I was making like 26000 a year. And I was, I was back at my parents. And I was like, man, I made some decisions that led to this. And I remember like dealing with that job day in, day out and just couldn't stand like people. And I think at that time I told my girlfriend, I was like, yeah, I got to make a change. I got to do something like I'm done, done with graffiti completely. I love my friends here, but I got to I got to go figure something out. And that's when I went back to Howard. That's when I moved down to D.C., took out those loans, went back to school focused on like doing marketing because I've been exposed a little bit through Discover and met some people there. Um, but as I started like studying more, I kind of figured that I wanted to get into apparel and just study like marketing and focus on apparel and careers and what I need to do. So that's when I went to Haynes. I was uh, down at Howard for another two years. Um, I had an internship with Haynes Brands down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And then I got hired on full-time uh, after my internship because of what I was able to do for them while I was there. I worked for about two years on a plus size women's brand, uh, down at Haynes. And when I was down at Haynes, I wasn't doing like the sexy marketing. I was doing business marketing. So I was like testing myself in different ways, like studying numbers, figuring out like our business strategy, processing our financial sheets, doing profit and loss statements, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I had the opportunity, I always wanted the opportunity, but I had the opportunity while I was at Haynes in North Carolina to get on the champion brand because that's really where I wanted to be. Um, so yeah, that's what spun me on. And that's when I started like getting a little bit more bold with what I was telling people and how I thought I could help inform people through through culture for marketing. Because a lot of like a lot of business marketing or a lot of people that just sit in rooms and don't really have a clue about most things that happen in culture that creates the culture they consume. And the culture I come from is like, you know, skateboarding and love park and like climbing up the L's at night and like running up and down I-95 on my feet to write spray paint on something and going to hardcore shows. So like I was able to bring something that was a little different than what they, they anticipated or had exposure to. Well, not that you, uh, not that you (laughs) won't find this funny, but, I always tell everybody, I'm like, thank God Ernie got involved with Champion because it went to Models, and <laughs> I grew up younger. I love Champion brand, and obviously every hardcore kid in the world loves Champion hoodies. But my entire fall and winter closet, because it, I always say because of you, but I don't know how well you had to do it getting on the Models. But because of you working on Mod- uh, working on the Champion brand and bringing it to like the streetwear level, my half my damn wardrobe. Isn't even hardcore t-shirts. It's it's champion crew necks and champion hoodies and champion sweats. <laughs> yeah. So I I appreciate the efforts because uh, 
you brought that back and made me a happy boy. Yo, dog. <laughs> uh, Modell Sporting Goods was my first job ever. And while I was a champion, I had the opportunity to work with Models, and we were building like these, these things called shop and shops, which are basically like branded shops within Models. And we were building like champion shops and Models. And I remember talking to them and being like, oh, my first job ever was at Models. And I got one for you that you wouldn't like. The union tried to make, Models has a union, like a, an employee union. So first job there, I'm making 550 an hour at Models. The union told us we all had to join. And I said, okay, well, how much is it? Because it's the only way you could get a raise is if you join the union. And they were like, it's a dollar. And I'm like, I'm making 550. And they were like, yeah, give us a dollar at 550. And I was like, I can't afford it. And I, I didn't end up joining the union. And I ended up getting paid 550 flat the whole time I was there while everybody else was getting raises. And I lasted, I lasted probably about, a, I think about a year. Before I was like, oh, I gotta go somewhere else. <laughs> I find I find that people who uh, they romanticize the union as this, you know, benevolent society, and they don't realize is the union. And I tell everybody like, I get paid well, and I have a great benefit package, but I also pay into the union. Our I get paid wages, but I think it's like six or seven dollars of my wages go right back into that union. But that's the beautiful thing about America and our ability to have collective bargaining is instead yeah. of instead of a multi, I don't even know if they're multinational, but a big corporation like Models, which is now obviously I think they're going bankrupt, but sadly, yeah. but uh, a, cor- a corporation could break down 152,000 workers and be like, you can't unionize. When you're in a union, you have the ability to, to pay within your wages someone who will represent you to get you higher wages. And what happens is, is from a union labor perspective, people want to show up. They want all the benefits of being a union worker and protection, but they get upset the minute you touch the money. Now at five fifty and four fifty, I would have been on the same rip. My first job was a bowling alley on the books. I worked uh, in cabinet shops, uh, cash before that I was paid four seventy five, which is minimum wage at a bowling alley. And if someone would have came in and said, listen, what, you'll get more raises, but we're going to be 375, I would have said, he'll fall the fuck back. <laughs> I said, fall the fuck back. <laughs> but, <laughs> and, and that's not even it. Um, it, really, it really just goes to show you that, I mean, I, I think a lot of things about union labor in America have been also disparaged. And there's, camp, there's literally campaigns and finances to eliminate the, lim- the small market share that unions have. But yeah, you're definitely gonna have. You're definitely gonna see that from time to time. Um, yeah. So you worked. So you worked to build up the camp. Did you think that by campaigning and building up the brand within Models, do you think that helped you towards getting Under Armour, or was it just a random choice that got you under Under Armour? Getting getting on a champion helped me get to Under Armour. Champion is like historically a sports brand, and because they are rooted in sports, they were doing things that were sports in nature. They were working with sporting good retailers. They were building like, you know, performance products and apparel. So that's what gave me that experience and exposure to be able to take the Under Armour. Now, when I got on the champion, uh, the the big the first thing I focused on was like women's sports bras. It wasn't even like the, the hoodies and all that. And women's sports bras are actually pretty big for champion. And they got like number one market share, had number one market share, number two market share in women's sports bras for a long time. Uh, so having that exposure, one, was like, they were trusting me to do bigger things. And then while I was on the champion brand, I sat next to the, the men's team 
and I sat next to the guy who was running the the men's team. And I remember like falling back all the time and looking at what like champion was doing like youth wise and being like, man, they are so far off. And like, I remember you said like, by the time you were 38, you were like, I had to school people and I was done. I was done fighting. I had to kind of like educate myself a little bit more and educate others as well. Like by the, you know, you're talking to people at 38. I had that like around 28 where I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta like, I gotta school people a little bit. But for me, the people I was schooling when I was 28 were like, this guy had been in the industry for like 20 some odd years. And he's trying to create youth strategy, targeting, targeting kids with like champion. And I remember sitting back being like some of the designs were whack, felt outdated. Their targeting was whack. And then like you, man, like I grew up where champion was a, a big deal in hardcore. It was a big deal in like East coast street culture. Like if you were a skateboarder or whatever. And I started dropping all this stuff on them at the time and being like, look, we, you got to start to aim in this direction. And I remember we had the, the collaboration with Supreme that launched in like 2009, 2010 through 2000. I left in 2013 and being able to kind of advise him on the back end of products or whatever. And I remember uh, the Urban Outfitters deal got me a conversation with somebody at Urban Outfitters who actually is in the hardcore as well. I think his name is Cody. Um, I met him. He was at running a booth at one of this. Uh, this is hardcore fest. But he also was like a, a men's, he was like the lead men's buyer at Urban Outfitter, super smart guy. Um, but yeah, I know actually now you, you know said it. Yeah, he ran it, he ran a punk rock venue. He booked a he booked a pre-show for this hardcore. That guy's incredible. He sang for hardcore band. Yeah, I know exactly who it is. It took me a yeah. second for the name to click. Yeah, he's at a, he was at Urban Outfitters last time I talked to him, but like he was one of the first people I met that was in a hardcore. But I came. I didn't go to Urban Outfitters. I came back to Champion, and I started trying to school them more and more on like what's going on in youth culture. Like, you know, Champions. Champions been in hardcore forever. Champions been in skateboarding. Like, Champion is has an opportunity to be the next big like youth brand. And at the time, we were just selling the models, you know. And after I left, the team pushed the strategy. I wrote a strategy that basically outlined like, yo, instead of us going right to my strategy was like, instead of us going right to uh, like City Blue or like a Jimmy Jazz or like one of those like kind of what they call urban retailers, I was like, why don't we go sell it like uh, PacSun or Tilly's or one of those like mall retailers because mass street culture is being influenced by like skate skateboard culture. And I said, Champion has an opportunity to be adopted as one of these retro brands that's coming up. So then we aimed that way and started to like get into culture a little bit more and more. And that's why like not people like our age, but like you see teenagers wearing champion again. Um, and that was the last that was my last act of champion. And then I got uh, recruited to come to Under Armour and I needed to get I need to get out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina at the time. I needed a break. Yeah, I can only imagine the difference. I know you grew up in Delaware and you had some. We we had we have some shared wild friends and some crazy backyard parties, and I know DC yeah. was expensive, but I, I can't think of North Carolina as being like a final resting place for any of my friends who grew up here. Nah, it's be- I mean it's beautiful and it's inexpensive. Like you could go down there and buy three hundred thousand dollar home with like fifteen acres and if you want around you, you know what I mean. Are right, you just sold me? I'm going. <laughs> yeah, you could. Like I, I Bro- thought about going back. Row, row homes in Philly, up the block, East Mount Airy, where people getting killed once every three weeks. 
Four thirty-five. Yeah, Row homes. Nah, I'm moving into Winston. <laughs> See yeah, me Winston. down there. Well, for me, look, check this out. So while I was working down there, two there was two things that made me feel like I need to like evolve and do something new. Like one is like I just right before I went to Winston Salem, I broke it up with my girlfriend. My fault. She went her way. I tried to follow her a little bit. My fault. And then I went to North Carolina. The um, I stayed down in North Carolina for about five years by myself. I didn't really have a lot of friend contact. I had like almost little to no family contact. I was just focused on like business and learning and um, trying to be a better student of marketing so I could be a better like purveyor and uh, marketer myself. And those are the things that I did. I like just shut everything down and just focused in on that to try and like build myself, make money, learn as much as possible. And that was one thing is the fact that I kind of isolated myself to do that. The second thing is like, while at work, while being like, you know, 28, 27, while I was down there, I remember like, I know how to deal with these things and I've gone through them in life. But like, when I'm down there by myself and I'm focused on work, that's what I'm, that's where my mind's at. And I remember at work, I one day I had this lady say to me, like, I was so mad at you about this meeting that happened that I could hang you right from an oak tree. And wow. I, said, wow. I said, excuse, I said, excuse me, what'd you say? And she said, I was so mad at you. I could hung you right from my oak tree. Like I didn't hear her the first time. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. She doubled down, bro. You doubled down. It's North Carolina, man. <laughs> so, I like there was things like that, that like at the end of the day, not to say, not to say anything, but I went through the whole process with that. But like, I didn't have anybody at the end of the day to come home to and be like, man, can you believe that happened? I remember calling my mom, calling my mom and her just kind of flipping out on the phone being like, what happened? What happened? And I was like, I don't know. You know, maybe she's going to come over here with her brothers or her uncles and night ride on my house or something. So like, you know, being isolated, you don't really have anybody to kind of like pour yourself out to or talk to. And that was the same at Howard too. Like while I was down there and like a lot of my friends were back up in Philly and Delaware, things that I was dealing with or going through, like either with my school or my girlfriend at the time, I didn't talk to anybody. Like those are things that I'm just like, just, just me in the world or me and her. And it's just like, this is it. And like, I'm going to isolate myself and I'm going to focus and I'm going to try and do, do the right thing. Although it doesn't happen all the time, but like, yeah, I think part of my part of my growth has been a little lonely at times too. Well, I don't think that that's a terribly bad thing because, like I said, I found my own bit of isolation kind of like a recharging moment and a, readjust, a readjustment as to the priorities. Because when you're out on the town five to seven nights a week, everybody's your friend. But the minute you yeah. can't make appearances, the minute you're not in the know you don't know the last joke you can't catch up to people you find yourself not getting the phone call but needing to catch up just to call to stay in the mix and i got tired of that quick because obviously like i said my situation there was on house arrest and then i realized i was catching up with a crowd that was really if you're not with what they're doing at the moment they could fall back and also i started hitting my stride in that same year with this hardcore because i had the time to refocus and double down on in, in in how we promoted and I had time to add not my social time, but like connections to different band people. And I was calling people, another podcast guest, Rich Hall, and, and reaching out to people to find 
the next layer of what would be this is hardcore came at that time when I was most isolated. And the only thing I had was my now wife, Jess, called me at like 430 in the morning because she lived in California. And we would talk for three hours a day that I knew I couldn't leave the house. That was like my social time. Other yeah. than that, I went to work Monday to Friday because I had the job. But then I'm on house rest. I had to go home. So I think isolation, if you have a task or like you're reshaping and, and, and building upon yourself is good. It's just it's not made to be for five or 10 years. It's a it's a period. You can do it. And I think yeah, sometimes it helps. I think growth, though, growth is meant to feel lonely. Because growth is like a personal mission. Like it's your personal growth, your personal evolution. Like it is meant to feel lonely to a point. Like I'm, because you're on your path to yourself. Like you, you know, this could be hardcore, it could be Nas, but like the saying of being born alone, die alone. There are people that come along in your path with you, but ultimately you have to take responsibility for how you evolve. And like we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, we can't be in a situation where I got, Somebody saying, yo, Ernie, can you come back me up? I'm about to go fight for this person who had something done to them. Like, then you're putting yourself back in the same cycles of like, I'm not a tough guy, but like, I feel obligated to my friends, so I should go with them. But, you know, like, I think, I think growth is meant to be lonely. I love what you just said right there about the obligation part. You just struck something in me where youth tells you, to tell your friend you're obligated to be a part of what I'm about to do. And for me, my growth came where someone called me on some dumb shit. I would say, don't go there. Come to my house. Let's get something to eat. Let's talk about this. And I would or be like, it was one of the young guys. Yo, I got this going on. I said, well, right, come on. Calm down. Come talk to me, young man. Let's, let's get you from doing something that you're going to have to deal with for the next five to 10 years of your life. And, and I think that that is true. You're going to growth is a personal journey. And one of the things like our, like our friendship right now, and I, I love being able to see you in your, in your LA home and hear your kids in the background is it didn't matter if this was conversation was two years ago, or if it's 10 years from now, we would still have the connection because of what we've been through and the mutual respect. And I find that sometimes in growth moments or times when, you know, personal aspirations get in the way of social function that people f- think that, Oh, my friends, I'm not going to have if I don't stay in this mix. If I don't stay in the game, you know, yeah. they're going to forget about me. And it's like your true friends and the people that you care for time in it is it doesn't matter. Like it's one of the things about my fest, you know, uh, all the people that we grew up under, all the Delaware guys, the Bayless 13 guys, the Philly old heads, they come together once a year and we have a big all hangout. And I may only see them once a year. There's people that pop up after not seeing them for 10 years, but the love is there. I think people are afraid to lose the love when they're chasing their goals and looking at you and look at the the things that you have achieved. And now the way that you're imparting this stuff on the new people, we would be terrible friends if we try to hold you like, oh, no, you, you know, I don't talk to Ernie. He didn't come to the last seven shows. It's like, come on, man, you gotta let these people do what they gotta do. And you love them enough that you know that they're good and they're going to be excelling where they need to excel. Yeah. I mean, and if people, people, people feel that way about like, I'm not going to talk to him no more. They feel that way about me. People feel that way about you. And it's like, you can't, I think when you're young, you, you think about those things and you worry about them, especially people on hardcore since it's such like a social, such like a social thing. But like, as you grow up and you mature, like you realize that like, yo, you got, you can have love for your friends 
but they don't have to be sitting at the table in the background. Absolutely. Like if they, they need you, they can reach out. Or if you need them, you should be able to reach out. But like you, you got to take care of business. So what's weird from my perspective is, and uh, you and I are around the same age group and we yeah. came into hardcore as teens and yeah. we had these crazy mentors who were not mentors. They're like maniacs, skinhead dudes, throwing tables at people, getting into trouble. And we also had the graffiti side. The same folks who would go off for 15 or 20 years and be normal people are popping back in and are saying, man, I miss this. I'm so glad you guys are still doing it. So in another weird way, I also am stuck in this like holding down the fort for when the old guys come back around or our friends come out of bad situations and they need light, you know, like our boy Soen, you know, Soen came to this is hardcore and he has a lot of troubles and I love him. So I don't, I don't say this disparagingly. He said, Hey man, he had like a, a sack of quarters. And he's like, yo, man, I'm out of the halfway house. I just want to be at the show this whole weekend. I said, yo, man, come in. We fed him all weekend. Told him, you want to shower? I'll give you band t-shirts. Keeping the light open for people who need us when we're still here is a beautiful aspect of hardcore. It's something that I've seen in my transformation from being a young 18-year-old idiot to the four-year-old showgoer and show promoter that keeps the light on for the people that need to come back into it when their own adulthood needs the reminder of like, oh, this is the fun shit I did as a kid or as a young adult, you know? Yeah, I think something something to that point, like even for you, Joe, you got to pick and choose who and it's tough to say this, man, but that's how, that's how I feel. Like you got to pick and choose like who you can help as well. And I, I look at that, I look at that and I take it very serious from like, um, from even like a mentorship or helping people find like jobs and where I'm at now. Like I can't help everybody. Not everyone's going to be saved. Some people have to show a willingness to want to save themselves. You know, I, I can't count on two hands how many friends that I've, I know or people I know personally that have died of heroin at this point. Like, I can't, can't help everybody. And I think the sooner that I, I got to that realization, like the, the more like weight I feel like I can shed and I can keep going. And I think that's a it's a tough thing to like say because people will feel like oh you're letting you turn your back on your friends and it goes against every 90, 95, 96, 1996 hardcore song we ever heard. But like, yo, the truth is you have to pick and choose you have to pick and choose your battles because you can't wage war with all of it. No, I agree wholeheartedly. Overwhelmed. <laughs> so I mean to say I say that to say like you can help someone, but there may be three or four other people or five other people that like, if you continue to help them, it's like, who's going to help you. What's crazy. And you're, this is a weird story, but it's not a weird story. So rode out for us on this crazy John Joseph's mission. Yeah. We had to go against this Harry Krishna parade downtown. And I just remember someone just always being at the front of the line of people. Like there was the show, this arc where bail of 13 when somebody went after me and I was trying to break up everybody from throwing tables and breaking shit. The same year, someone's the first person to grab somebody. Go, that's it. You want to fuck up the show and drug them out? And I'm like, see, this is why I keep someone around. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I need them in that one moment. But what you said is how I had to live my life for so long. My fucking heart broke so many times. I mean, punishment has had two drummers that died of an overdose. We have friends that are dropping dead at such a rate out here. 
that when someone tells me someone's dead, I immediately go to, oh, it must be an overdose or a suicide. And it, it just oh, kills. Dude, it, it kill it literally like my wife, she's because obviously she she's so emotional and I'm like, I get I suck it all in. I can't go to some of these funerals because it just hurts to know that uh, here's another one, man. So I, I'm with you. I don't don't let I, I keep the light on, like I said, but, you know, I'm the same one. And, and I'll get real with you. Like the same time I helped sewing, Ethan from Punishment showed up at a Stony benefit. And I said, yo, man, you're going to fall back. You're dipping out right here. And he's dead. And I worry, should we have done more? But it's not up to me to do more for these people. You know, like, so I'm with you. It fuck it breaks my heart to even think about it. Like that, and I and I don't I don't lose sleep over it. But when it comes to certain people passing, it's like a a, a friend of ours, Sean Mesh, who was a Junietta hardcore dude, he overdosed to Tioga L stop at 12 30 at night in the in the winter, and his body froze and it took four days to thaw out so they could give an autopsy. And mm-hmm. you know. I don't want to end up like that. And I don't want my friends end up on that. And my, the problem is my friends end up like that. My family has ended up like that. And and it's such a weird juxtaposition because I'm a 40 year old straight edge dude. Who's been straight edge for half his life out of fear of never wanting to be that. And at the same time, so it's not like uh, running around like, Oh, don't come near me. I don't want none of that. But it's this, this constant motivation to that's the lowest life can get. And I feel so bad when I see someone get to it that I don't know what to do sometimes. So I usually back off, but I got love for someone for some reason. I don't know why I just got love for the kid. You know, I think that's fine. I mean, you guys were both, weren't you both like nine circle? He was younger than us, but he eventually came into that crazy world, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So like, I think that, I mean, that, that's cool. Like you, again, you're like, you have, you have people that you, you pick that you've been attached to for a long time that you're like, man, I want to help this person. And, I mean, there's probably a point where, like, if you see somebody never helping themselves, you're kind of like, man, that's I don't the know number what, one. What I can actually do. That's the number one. There's a lot of people with social media that immediately it's a constant state of, help me, I'm sinking. Help me, I'm sinking. And they get a little help and then they sink in a different way. And it's like, listen, man, within the last 10 years, my wife and I were homeless from a bad decision to the point where I was living in Mac Gallagher's mother's house. And I said to her, if we don't get this house, you got to go home to California before we got married. Yeah. I was no GoFundMe. There was a Bob Wilson did a show because I got arrested and we got in a bad situation. But like, I'm thankful for the support I get. And I always try to pull myself up. And and I I really hate ever reaching out. And I don't expect people like, oh, you got to pull your bootstrap up. We're a community. We all got to help each other out. But the chronic problem with, certain individuals in certain circumstances that they see help as a way to not pull themselves up. And I, and I can't be a part of it. And I've seen it too much, man. We got dark on this right now. <laughs> it got me bummed yeah. out. But it's but, not, it, it's not just drugs. It's like people that are into other stuff too, man. No, it, it's, it's like, it's, it's a bad behavior and it's a bad mindset that I think is actually yeah. worse than the drugs. You know, it's a victimhood that comes from saying, well, you guys have this, so you can. And it's like, look, I might have this, but it's it's not that gravy. And if I give you this and I don't have that, and it gets hard as you get hard for me to get older because I tell everybody, all the young kids, look, you can go to college, and unless you got this spark, you're going to end up in college debt. But if you want to go and trade, I look at 
work that I do, I'm trading my body per hour for money. My hands hurt. My neck hurts. But guess what? When I'm 65, all that hurt will have an annuity and a pension to go to. I tell people, if you don't have a plan to jump into college and you're going to go into $100,000 of debt, just pick up a shovel and a broom for a little bit and learn what we do. And maybe you'll turn something else on. And I, you know, a lot of our friends who are graffiti writers are actually union carpenters now. I see them yeah. on jobs and I'm like, did I not just see you right in the bathroom? Oh, you know me. I still got to get up. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, they're pulling down 90 grand a year being a union carpenter. Yeah, yeah. And it's a crazy juxtaposition of not wanting to leave that life, but they're out there getting that hourly money where you trade your body and your physical strength and your mental sure and natural. And, and, and I'm, I'm going to put the link of that news article in our website. So people who are listening can hear it, but you have that same look like, nah, man, this is where I'm at. I'm, I'm helping this kid now and he's going to achieve. And this kid is sitting here for, you got to see the video for the people listening. There's like a 13 year old kid who looks like he's already a mogul. Like he's already made it. And you're sitting here being like, well, what, what, what choices do you want to make? Like, you know, Hey, can we check out this? And this kid's sitting here, like he's already made it. And, and that confidence, I spoke to you on a different telephone call, but this, I I said this in many podcasts, confidence is feared by people in hardcore because they're afraid of someone being like, Oh, why is he so confident? You know, like, what's he, what's he, what's he thinks he's better. But it's like, I feel like to be successful and drive, you have to have like a completely, unbreakable confidence and i saw that in you when you're sitting there with these cameras rolling and you got this 13 year old and you're you're walking him through the process yeah i think for me like it's always when i'm when i'm talking and when i'm doing presentations it actually comes from hardcore a little bit where you get on the stage and like you have this myopic focus the singular focus on like what you're doing or what you're saying or owning the stage or moving the room or whatever it is like is going through your mind at the time, like, or just putting on a, putting on a performance in general. And it's like, there is a little bit of that. Like I'm putting on, I'm putting on a performance when I'm presenting or when I'm building a case for like a business or something, or like even what I'm focused on now, like raising my kids, being in LA, trying to grow up through Amazon where I am now. Like a lot of it is just singular focus, making sure that it, Someone have a one track mind because I have a job to do. And I think like in that, in the, um, in the news thing with CNN that you're mentioning, like my focus was, my focus was on Trey at the time. Right. But I actually thought there was something bigger behind it. I look at Trey as representative for a 13 or 14 year old that doesn't know other options like it my, myself i didn't know other options then like i thought okay the military is probably gonna be where i go that's gonna be what i do but for a lot of kids a lot of young black kids they think their way is going to be going through like sports or through like music like these are the two things i'm gonna do and i'm like man trey is a great opportunity to basically trey trey himself is a vehicle for inspiring like kids and like if i can get with trey and we could start talking about college. Trey may not go to college because he's got it. He's got it made for himself. He's going to make that decision in a few years. You know what I mean? If that's what he wants to do. But like, we can talk about it, and we can show. We can show Howard. We can show a college, and then maybe the people watching this 
maybe the kids, some kid watching this will look at Howard in a different light or look at college in a different light. Maybe a kid watching this will then understand like what are some of the paths that they can take to like build their own business. Like that was that was the focus, I think, at the time. Like how do you use how do you use Trey and this opportunity to maybe reach others and inspire others? Now, beyond that CNN article or a uh, video, rather, uh, one of the things that I, when you did your uh, your hip hop project and you were talking about political science, I've always known you to be someone who's always wanted to uplift, uplift his community, so to speak. Do you feel like as you continue to grow as within these different brands that you're working for, that you're going to have more opportunities to expose more of the young black culture to more opportunities than either sports or music? And have you ever tried to put something kind of like a, like a nonprofit or a charity organization together like that? I mean, one of the first things that I did when I left Howard is I came back to Howard and started the Howard Marketing Summit. And the Howard Marketing Summit was for the sole purpose of like bringing back the people who graduated from Howard and became senior executives other places and using them to using them as exposure like vehicles for students at Howard because students at Howard were looking for placement like within marketing and trying to create and build that build that bridge so we could get more marketing, more marketing executives placed, uh, more recruitment, more jobs placed. And then I started like trying to recruit people everywhere I've been. And it's not just like people from Howard, but it has been underrepresented, underrepresented like community. So it's been primarily focused on like uh, black communities. But like I can think of the last two people I helped get placed were like white. One was from outside of Chester. And now he's like gone on to do something great. He's working for Jeff Staple up in New York as his director of marketing. And like, so I'm down to help people, but like, I love when people have a story. I love when people are like, yo, I've been trying to do this, uh, but I need a little help. I just need a little direction. What do you think? And like when I see people that are willing to like lift themselves up just a little bit and I have opportunity or access, then I can help expose them to that and help elevate them or help push them through. And that's been kind of like been kind of my goal ever since I've been in business. And the other thing that I feel like being in business is look like, Everywhere I've been is solely out to make is solely out to make money through products, services, improving people's lives, so to speak. And like, but they are corporations at the end of the day. And they're billion dollar corporations at the end of the day. And I know I am there to do a job because I have a specialty and a focus that may like open up new lines of business or new consumers for these businesses that I'm working with or for. And I realize that like we live in a, a capitalist country, a capitalist structure. This is why I'm, this is why I'm here. I'll be honest at the end of the day, it doesn't always make me feel good. I think what makes me feel good though, is being able to like help people. And like, that's a way I like kind of justify what I do or like level out what I do in my head. It's like, all right, I got here. I'm not exactly where I want to be today and I see myself going further, but there are other people that don't know how to get here and I want to help them get here quicker than what I was able to do by just giving them a, a word of advice or pushing them in a direction or showing them something they weren't looking at. Um, that, so yeah, I mean, to, to, it's a long way of answering your question, but like I do, I do things and I reach out to people because it makes me feel good to like be able to help people. 
but help people that also are helping themselves. No, so. that's that's amazing that the the relationship between people who are have drive but don't have some of the blueprint. And I don't think you need the full blueprint. You're going to go step A to step B. But like uh, one of the podcast guests that I had, and, and I'll send you to you, check it out. He said, I didn't have the money for a guitar. So I went to Guitar Center and played the same guitar for months to learn. Later on, he would eventually buy that guitar. Later on, his first job would be working at that Guitar Center. Then he taught himself to write beats. And he actually has a like a insanely popular Spotify thing. And I think of the drive of that person and this uh, Salem from Bloodbather, you know, single, single parent, South Florida, black kid, loves wearing makeup and dresses, but plays in a heavy metal band. But he has such a drive that I wonder if he had a blueprint or a little bit of help. It might have sped up some of the process. Now, he's a young man. He's not even 30. So he's got plenty of time. to succeed. I got time. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel that people like you within the capitalist corporate structures are necessary. Otherwise, there's always going to be that divide like you talked about previously where you had to enlighten older people on, oh, this is where you're wrong. This is where your marketing is going stale. Without someone like you in this system that is inherently not doing well for everybody, you're still helping people get aboard. And, and I think that's important, man. And I think a lot of times when people are on the drive up, and I know that you are on the drive up, there's no looking back. I don't have time. I got no stragglers. I'm going to get yeah. to the top of this ladder. And I, and I can't ever see that being you, man. I can't ever see you being, but like you said, you can't help everybody. Like, Hey, uh, actually you're, you're attached to another guest, Maddie, who was a year of the knife, Candor corpse. Yeah. I know Maddie. You gave her a lot of advice early on. And I mean, look at her. She's not 30. Her entire business is run from her house. Her and her husband livelihood is a company that she started through contacts through this arc or, and you, and she actually brought you up. And I said, yo, yeah, we're definitely going to have him on the podcast. Like you, you've always been able to touch people and give advice or just be there with some like cool headed stuff. And I remember even when we were at our crazy moments, uh, for instance, and you were talking about third party beefs, the church, American nightmare. We're all going off. Somebody comes at you, you get cracked or you crack them, the whole show goes outside for the fight, and you were already over. Like, I already did my business. And that's always the thing I would think about you is like, even when the shit was going down, you're like, ah, I'm, I'm good. I took care of what I had to take care of. And I think about that in a lot of ways that there's some people that have to carry on, and you were never the person to carry on. Uh, I think it's really cool that you got to play the church, and uh, you got to play the church with Tyler. And, and I, I, I just... I love that you have this ability to stay in our world through these connections, but you're in another universe in another tent. You know, it's, it's great, man. It's great to see you uh, excelling in this world, but also you're still so attached to ours. Yeah. I feel like with like punk rock and like hardcore, those things are things that you grow up in. Like Tyler, Tyler's older brother and me, we went to school together and his brother is like super into punk rock was always always punk rock dude since I've known him like middle school and like I remember meeting Tyler later and I was like oh you're in a you're in a hardcore and punk rock I mean he's more in the hardcore than he is in the punk but like his brother is really into punk and um I remember meeting him and I was like man it must run in the family and I talked to him and he was cool he was straight edge and I'm like I'm straight edge and you know for our different reasons and 
I'm like, yeah, we clicked. And so it's not, it's not hard to stay in that world, but I'll admit like, like you, I'll admit I'm a pro I'm a pro I'm approaching 40. I'm not 40 yet, but like, I'm not 20 years old either. So to stay connected, to stay connected in what's going on, to be a better marketer, to be like more informed around like changes in culture, you have to find ways to be connected to 20 year olds, to what they're doing and what they're consuming and what they're listening to and what they're wearing and all that. So, you know, that's part of who I am. It's also part of my job, but it is more so who I am. You know, I'm on a, I'm on a text message with three dudes that are 15 years younger than me. And they're always talking about what albums just came out. That's the only reason I know like what new music is popping because uh, some dudes that are 25 years old are talking about uh, some new record that dropped. So you're not the, you're not the first person on this podcast who said something very similar. In fact, my very first episode, Chris talked about as bridge nine grew, he got older and he relied on bands who were touring under bridge nine to bring in new artists and acted almost like a, uh, de facto A&R to help him. I know myself, I have had Bob Wilson and Maddie and all these younger people tell me about bands that they've seen <laughs> outside of Philly. So I think inherently as we grow and we're trying to get better at what we do, we have to rely on the youth. Obviously, I know you got to get ready to go soon, so I'm going to ask you a couple yeah. quick short ones, all right? Um, we talked about many different cultures that you were uh, like the founding principles of what you kind of rely on. How crazy is it looking at what you grew up in your teens to kind of see swirl together, like an amalgamation of each other where, when we came up, everything was more compartmentalized and separate skateboard, skateboarding culture, hip hop culture. There was some bleed over between the graffiti end. there was some things, but now it seems, unless you want to say other contradictions, yeah. otherwise it seems like youth culture is an amalgamation as opposed to being these separate tracks and you can't mix them. And how do you as a marketer, work with that since it's all mixed in now man it's all it's all like youth culture there are some things that are like so far out that it's kind of hard for people to touch them like there are aspects of like hardcore like if you look at kids in hardcore they're consumers they buy a lot of stuff like there are certain kids in hardcore that want the the latest sneakers or the latest gear and all that but there are aspects of like hardcore that are still super underground and like that i think can't really be bastardized uh but i think all in all things like skateboarding it went from it went from like an underground skate shop thing to be in an over 10 billion dollar industry and like when once something like that happens everything that those skateboarders and people like consume and listen to and do like on the periphery it's going to start to bubble to the surface too so like it didn't take long for graffiti to go from the streets to the murals to art galleries, to like graf- people that had wrote graffiti working as creative directors at agencies and designing advertisements. And like, I think as people in our generation have gotten older, that's actually what's brought a little bit more of the stuff to the mainstream, because this is kind of like what we know, what we did, what we are part of. I work with a creative director now who is, I think he's, he told me he's from like outside of Westchester somewhere. And he was into like 90s, like emo bands. And he was naming stuff from Philadelphia that I was like, oh, you know them? And he's like, yeah, you know, we really wanted to sound like them at some point. And I'm like, he's my creative director. And like, so there's, I think, you know, part of it is like, you can't separate it. You can't separate it from the people that grew up in it. 
that are here, like doing what we do today. And there, you can't separate it because it's just the way culture's moving. Like, but where do you see an example of things like hip hop and uh, like hardcore crossing over in like the, in the mainstream? Where do like I the, sit now in the mainstream? Well, I don't yeah, really, I mean, I, my, my interaction with the mainstream is only through what I see on Twitter. I uh, I refuse to watch any mainstream news, as I told you before. I, I I really limit what media I bring on. I rather I rather read the and it sounds fucked up, but I would rather read someone's uh, written perception, like some kid saying this new sneaker is whack or this record's good. Then oh, yeah. then you then you know that's that's what I look for, and that gives me a better perception of what's going on. Is someone's firsthand not some hearsay or not some clickbait article and i feel that in this time of mass media like i click on the youtube i watch like um dizo samero like these little clip shows and get that you know um yeah. I, I i fish through spotify for weekly releases and hear different stuff um but i i really depend upon what people that i'm connected to are sharing and reposting to see if it's jumping you know what I mean? Like uh, there are so many uh, niche things or small things that these younger kids are getting into. Like I never would have thought stuff like a little peep or all that kind of like different thing. Uh, and there's yeah. this, and then there's this kid ghost main who has like face tattoos and he's like this tall silver haired son of a bitch. But then he's jumping around and kids are moshing. Like I never would have seen the culmination of a different aesthetic all pressed into one. And then I realized I don't have to worry about that because I'm 40 years old. What I have to do is be (laughs) be welcoming specifically to the people that are supporting it because it's their time to shine. My goal is to give them the opportunity through shows, give them the community that's safe enough for them to practice what they want and give them this space they need to explore the things that they explore without kind of contradicting them. Say, this is whack, man. It doesn't matter if I like it. My votes, no. I just have to be open to understand that not everything is 1999 again, and we're not yeah. all sitting here in half polo, but still somehow rocking sweatpants or docks, and we're going, you know, we're getting psyched all these different kind of shows. All that's in the past now. You know, my job is to curate good shows, support the people who are supporting hardcore, and keep a more open mind instead of being like an old dude that's like, back in my day, we did everything one way. It's like, not. Nah, I can't be like that. So, um, mainstream stuff. Mainstream stuff, I'm I'm totally lost on, bro. Like, I, I I don't know much at all about what mainstream people even do. I well, can't. I, oh, you know what? I know. I I saw the video. WAP. WAP. And I, WAP. I can't say it. I say WAP like the Italians I work with. Hey, yo, you know the day goes. <laughs> I, I seen that video. Like, there's stuff that I understand from that world, but like, it, it, I I I know more about what I see on YouTube. And I know more about what I hear from people than I would ever from a mainstream outlet. Yeah. I mean, I, I checked out WAP because I heard about it and I saw a clip of the video and I thought I should watch the whole thing. But like you talk about ghosty man. Yeah. Like ghosty man is amalgamation of things, but ghosty man also existed in the eighties. Like dudes that were in the hardcore, even skinheads, they listened to like rap music. And like you had ice T trying to do body count. And like through the years, you had some different like crossover groups that were like authentic. And like Ghosty Man, I think is just the evolution of all that. And like he appeals to hardcore kids, right? More so than probably kids that listen to rap music. We almost had him on This Is Hardcore. <laughs> he actually really he uh his manager reached out to us 
I have this thing about bands that are the you know, I don't know if you've heard the term. It's hardcore adjacent. That means it's not quite hardcore, but it's like next to it, which I think is super funny oh. to think about the idea of adjacency as an adjective to describe something culturally. But that's the the uh, ad hoc term is adjacent. So whenever somebody who's representing an artist says, hey, he'll be a really good fit. I need to hear it from the horse's mouth. I did it with this band from Louisville, Kentucky called Knock Loose. Their agent wanted them to play this hardcore. And I said, I'm not against it, but I want to hear from the person who's going to perform that they have a connection to the culture. So it's not disingenuine. Mm -hmm. So when I reached out to him was through a friend and he was like, I don't know why he asked me that, you know, he, he was so humble and like, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. And it actually wasn't until a year later with code orange had them on the one Philly show. And I got to see the representation of it live where I'm like, I don't know where this fits in with this hardcore, but I think yeah. it'd be so fucking crazy to see one time. Like shit, I had Guar on the fest. I can yeah. I can handle I could handle a ghost main set solely for the freak out the squares. Like the remember the, like the punk rock dudes that had the Liberty Spikes. I think that's gonna be gone. But I think this weird amalgamation of hip hop, but hardcore, but this, I think that may be the new freak out the squares. I mean. The face tattoos and the hand tattoos first thing would have got our asses kicked. And I know I was threatened by Don Juan and the older Old City dudes for getting a couple <laughs> tattoos in my ear and my neck before I had other shit tattooed. But if that's their culture and it kind of mixes what we do, my job isn't to gatekeep it. It's to kind of facilitate it so that way these young kids feel attached and might find some cool shit at Agnostic Front and all the other hardcore stuff that goes on with this is hardcore. That's my perspective on it. You should try and book Ghosty Main and a bunch of other like similar acts with like an agnostic front and see what the old dudes, how the old dudes take it once they show up. I would love to see stigma. I would literally like to see just stigma <laughs> on the side of the stage while ghost mains going down. I think um, <laughs> the aesthetic alone, I would just put a, I would put a stigma cam just, and I would probably, that would be the greatest. Oh, I know all, those, all those dudes. Um, I'm going to ask you two quick ones. I know I said it really quick. What is your biggest regret looking at the timeline between failure and reset and relaunch to now is there one thing that you wish you could have taken out to speed up the process or do you respect the process for what it gave you um like there's there's one thing that i learned like through the journey is like you can work as hard as possible but networks are gonna and you you notice like in in hardcore like networks and relationships are gonna take you further so one is that and like I would say the the only regret I have coming up is like probably more personal and hurting people. Fair enough. Not not hurting not hurting people physically, but like you know, I mean, hurting people. What is your? I would say your. Do you have a? Uh, the best way to put it is to make it easy. Is there something that you are working on right now that you think it's worth sharing for us, and or is there like a? a goal down the line that you've been working on that you're able to talk about as something we should be looking forward to from you. Yeah. I would say everybody, one, everybody should try and keep a side hustle if they can. I've been, again, like I've been so focused on like my kids and everything I've been doing like lately, just trying to like grow my career, learn new industry that I haven't been given as much focus as I need to some, to some side projects that I do. One is with uh Fotis. We work on something called grits dc which is basically a virtual restaurant down in dc that you can order through like uber eats or grubhub we've been experimenting with 
uh, concept of what they're what's called cloud kitchens for the past couple of years. Um, that's one, and that's one I need to give more attention to. And then the other thing I'm doing with another friend is launching a design project for apparel and footwear, where we're trying to build uh, apparel and footwear in the U.S. And building apparel in the U.S. is easy. You got like New York and L.A., but we're trying to build it in Baltimore, and we're trying to build footwear in Philadelphia. And we're trying to like, I don't know, it's been a long journey. It's been probably about a year, year and a half almost. We've been trying to figure this out, but we both have like expertise within apparel and design and product. And yeah, that's one that you should look out for. And that project's called Anchor. Now, let me ask you something. When you say build, are you talking about actually design and you're talking about just design? Or are you talking about construction and manufacture here? I am talking about like designing it, designing it here. Um, Designing it here, figuring out a way to like build and manufacture it here. So like we're trying to build like actual products on the East Coast. That's amazing. Um, one thing I'll impart to you as we get ready to go, check out the brand Origin Maine. Um, I actually spoke to you or hit you up. I listened, I listened to the podcast that the guy does. And he had uh, your former friend from Under Armour on his podcast, uh, Hands of Daylight. And that's why I said, man, that guy's story was incredible. Yeah, Kit Foltz. Yeah, Kit Foltz is on there. Yeah. And one of the things, Origin Maine is from Maine and in New England. This guy yeah. was a creative director who then started building his own jujitsu geese. And he was outsourcing. They stole his patterns. So then he just figured out a way to get looms. And he learned, and he basically, their brand is like from the dirt to the shirt. And they now do jeans. They do boots. They do mm -hmm. jujitsu stuff. And uh, I'll leave you with this uh, on I street. I worked in a factory working on, well, I don't even know what it was me and uh, Hayes from OAL, IYA, yeah. Hayes, Jimmy. We were working in a factory with uh, Todd from Frankfurt's mom. And these factories are now all condos and they're now being redeveloped in gentrification. And the reason why a lot of Philadelphia and Baltimore are failing in the inner cities is because the deindustrialization. So we can, if you can get your shit together and you can bring jobs back to the neighborhoods and teach people how to make meaningful products, I think that'd be incredible. And I, I really look forward to seeing you and what you do with that. It'd be awesome. Thanks, bro. Sometimes it's just about showing people it can be done. Well, I don't know much about it and I don't want to take up too much time, but I think yeah. my, my limited resource brain in this regard says someone could save 25 cents on the dollar or 10 cents on the dollar. So they shipped all the stuff out of the country instead of thinking about the economic impact of the loss of jobs, unless I'm, unless I'm simplifying it too much. And that's why we lost the manufacturing. Yeah. I mean that we lost the manufacturing because it's cheaper to have the labor externally, but like when we lost the, the labor, we also lost the know-how to do a lot of those things like in this country. So like countries like China were just, they had the labor, they could do it cheaper. They had the resources, they developed the know-how and they just continued to evolve. And like now they can do things cheaper. They can do things faster. So part of like rebuilding is part of the process. It's like part of what I'm doing with Anchor is kind of like what I had to do with myself. It's like relearn the process to be able to figure out a way to do it better. And like it's Anchor is an evolution kind of like I had to go through an evolution to figure out a way to do it. Because right now it's too expensive. But if I can figure out the right way to build a supply chain, the right way to structure my finance, uh, the right way to like get these products made efficiently, then like in a year or two, I can deliver something meaningful and I can show people what can be done 
back in Baltimore, back in Philadelphia. That would be a blessing on all ends. And I really hope that you can get that endeavor really rolling, man, because that's what America needs. And I think that's what inner city, East coast, mid Atlantic cities need the most. Oh, they definitely need it. Um, I, I know we, we have a little bit of time. Uh, is there, is there social media you want people to check out or you just want to leave it as, Hey, you're Ernie Talbert. You're the fucking man. Like, uh, give me a good sign off right now, brother. Yeah. I mean, thanks for joining me and Joe listening to me babble for the last hour and 45 minutes, two hours, whatever it is. You can just Google Ernie Talbert. I'm a pop-up first result. Simple like that. <laughs> I love it, man. So, uh, uh, I really appreciate the conversation. And more importantly, I appreciate uh, getting to know you as a young man and a teenager and, and hearing the stuff that you're working on is just the coolest. And I just wish you the best of luck. Thanks, bro. It was good connecting with you. Definitely, brother. Be good. All right. I'll holler at you. I really enjoyed that one, despite the fact that we didn't have the same amount of time that I usually put to a lot of our guests. I feel like the people who listens will find a lot to be inspired by. Ernie is someone who continues to support as Madison had brought him up in episode four. And just in general, Ernie is someone who can lead you to a path that you may not have anticipated being open to you. And I hope that there is some words of wisdom for you. I actually think because of this shorter podcast, there's a very good chance I'll just bring him back on and maybe ask him some more direct questions and maybe a how-to. Who knows? He was a great person to speak with, an old friend, and I was very happy to have him on the podcast. Going forward, next Monday, we're talking to James Vitalo, formerly a Backtrack, Long Island Hardcore modern day legend, so to speak, who really is entrenched in band management with Terror, Turnstile, and quite a few others. His story does touch on the beginnings of Backtrack, but we don't get too heavy into it because, again, it's another shorter one. And I'm excited that we were able to run two podcasts closer together instead of seven days, five days. We'll see if you guys listen to it. Um... I don't want to hear, hey, this one's shorter. Maybe you should do them all shorter because some of these people that I talk to, I need more time. We got to go a little bit deeper. And I take a lot of excitement out of hearing the whole story. Speaking to Wrench, Anthony Moreshi, who was on our previous episode just today, it's also important to understand that these guests will often be on other podcasts. And so my take is going to be a little bit different than if he shows up on Ace's Furum of Passion, or if he is on a Rams One Step Beyond. So this is the way that I take one of guests. Others will do it differently. It's important that all of our guests go out and do all the podcasts and that we continue to support as many of the hardcore podcasts that are out there because this is a really small market for podcasts, and this is already a small, very DIY culture. So if my episode with... Wrench is three hours long and we get to the nitty gritty. It makes it easier for people like Ram and Ace and anybody else who will have Wrench on there to just get right to the uh, brass tacks and talk about his docuseries Don't Stand Alone or just ask questions maybe from 10-yard fight days. 
you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, the Joe Hardcore. I still promote everything on my page as well as the This Is Hardcore social channels. Facebook is This Is Hardcore, T-I-H-C Fest, Twitter, and This Is Hardcore Fest spelled out on Instagram. I will have content starting to be loaded up on Patreon, and we'll get that ball rolling, but it's not my biggest priority. My biggest priority is getting quality content out there so people continue to engage. I really, really, really can't tell you how much I appreciate when people hit me up. I've done my best to stay up on the comments, and I write everybody back. Thank you for the support. I hope you have a great Thanksgiving Day weekend, and I really look forward to you giving me your insight on how this whole five-day, two-podcast things happen. Thank you so much. Also, T-I-H-C Podcast. I keep saying it, and I don't know if you guys actually go and check it out, but if you go to that site, every episode we have special links so you can find our guests. Sometimes there's YouTube uh, videos and there's a lot of extra pictures of the guests so you can kind of check out we're still not a video podcast that may come in 2021 have to hammer out the kinks and figure out how to make that happen so for now this is how we're interacting but there's always extra content just in pictures and links to get in touch with our guests at tihcpodcast.com thank you so much